is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Between the Korean and the Vietnam Wars, U.S. Navy Captain Royce Williams flew over 220 missions. The following story was classified as top secret because if the word got out that the Russians were now engaging our troops in the Korean War, World War III could have easily broken out. For more than 50 years, Captain Williams didn't tell a soul, not even his wife. Nobody knew what this 27-year-old South Dakotan did that day over the skies of Korea until now. Yes, um, born more or less to the Foss clan of South Dakota, which is rather famous. My mother was one of 13. Um, but my dad, who was a mail carrier on motorcycle, he was in World War One, and um, then settled near where he was born in South Dakota, a town called Wilmot. Um, very patriotic upbringing. He was uh, large in the local legion, commander of the uh, unit at times, and. Uh, I grew up uh, engaged in the community. Uh, I took on scouting as a serious matter and uh, was their community's first Eagle Scout. But um, I turned out to be an awfully good farmer. And uh, though my brother and sisters pretty much worked for my dad in the grocery business, I worked for a lot of family, it was a lot of uncles <laughs> and their farms. And then when I moved to Minnesota, uh, I was sort of uh, on demand in farming. And uh, I worked for my uncle uh, at a resort. Mother didn't worry much about me. She came out one time because we weren't back as expected. And she found out that we had been in the trestle of a uh, railroad track, uh, and the train was coming, and we ducked down below the uh, rails and uh, rode underneath in the wood uh, supporting the, the, the bridge. And uh, we were safe, but uh, mothers don't like those sort of things. I was full-time engaged and uh, very athletic. I uh, played in all the sports and lettered in all of them. And I was taller then. <laughs> I've lost five and a half inches with the compression of my uh, back. But that is manageable and every life's good. I uh, had my first flight when I was four years old and a uh, Ford Tri-Motor out of a pasture in South Dakota along with my uh, grandma, her first flight too, and she was 80. And uh, interested in aviation from that time on. My brother likewise. And uh, when I was about uh, seven or eight, two years older, we made a pact. The famous aviators in those days were Lindy Lindbergh and Roscoe Turner. Well, his name is Lim. If I'd call him Lindy, he'd call me Roscoe. 
Later on, when I was uh, assigned uh, duty on the USS Independence, Roscoe Turner came aboard as a VIP and I was his guide. Takes us to World War II. My brother, uh, about two years older than me, and I were roller skating in front of his grocery store and he came out and said, boys, come in and listen to this. And it was FDR on the radio proclaiming the attack on Pearl Harbor. We all got very serious and uh, our thinking thereafter is how we're going to participate. My dad likewise thought he ought to jump in, but they wouldn't take him. But he sent his two sons. Everybody in America was full-time engaged in some way or other in support of their country in World War II. And little kids were saving the foil from gum. <laughs> and in the slightest little thing like shoestrings or whatever, everything was going into a war effort. And that made them special and changed their life. So I was 16 and I joined the local Minnesota Guard. Um, the Guard was called up and I had two cousins in it. They went to Morocco and both were killed. I didn't go because I was 16 and I went up to Camp Ripley for training in northern Minnesota. Uh, let me finish high school, and when I turned 17, I was eligible for naval aviation. And uh, applied and uh, accepted, and uh, sent down to Corpus Christi, Texas. I didn't get any actual combat in World War II. I flew the airplanes, and uh, we were instructed to keep an eye out because we were flying over areas of the ocean where uh, German submarines were operating, but uh, that was pretty much it. My brother finished a little bit ahead of me, chose uh, the Marine Corps for his uh, aviation, uh, was in on the Okinawa combat for our area, and I uh, went through a full career, pretty much the uh, same as I did. He got more carrier landings than most any other Marine I know. And I uh, was in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And I relieved him in his final station on Admiral McCain's staff at Sinkpack in Hawaii, and he retired the next day. Talked to him a couple of days ago. He's almost 97. And you're listening to the voice of Captain Royce Williams, and my goodness, it harkens back to a different day in this country. At 17 years old, graduating from high school, boom, gone to Corpus Christi, hoping to get in on the war. Not old enough to do so. His father tried to get in, couldn't do it. A different time, and a remarkable time in American life and history. And when we come back, the story of Captain Royce Williams continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories. And let's continue now with Captain Royce Williams in his own words about his own life. I made patrols in uh, 1952. Second uh, tour in South Pacific on the Princeton, we were shadowing with the ship that the Admiral was on. And we were all slated to go around the world. We hit a typhoon off Guam, and one squadron lost eight airplanes on one flight. And we were sent back to the States, and they continued on the around the world cruise. Well, I got selected for regular Navy, and having only high school background, I was uh, sent to the University of Minnesota for 18 months to get a two-year degree. I got a four-year degree and still had another quarter due me, so they sent me to postgraduate school. And um, coming out of there, the Korean War was underway and I went to a fighter squadron out of Miramar in uh, the fall of 52. And uh, I was flying an F9F5, which was uh, the new model of the Panther. And our mission was primarily close air support and reconnaissance where targets were trains, train tracks, trucks, bridges, tunnels. And we were not getting to some of the prime targets with manufacturing far to the north. So, late November, Task Force 77 and others uh, decided to put together a task force of three carriers and uh, associated ships, probably numbering 20-some. And uh, in the press of night, we uh, headed on up off Changjin, which is one of the major northern cities of uh, North Korea. And in that morning, I was on the first combat flight that uh, attacked Horyang. Well, when I came back from that flight, I was told that uh, take a quick snack and come back, you're on the combat air patrol next. So I thought it was going to be not too exciting, but uh, we took off uh, in a snowstorm, blizzard, 500 feet ceiling, formed as a uh, division of aircraft under the clouds, climbed through to on top, which was 12,000 feet. Well, while we were in the clouds, we got a message from our controller in the combat information center saying that there were bogies, unidentified aircraft, inbound, headed toward the task force, 80-some miles north of us. So when we arrived on top of the clouds, I could see to the north contrails. They were very high. Uh, About that time, the flight lead had a light indicating he had uh, a warning regarding his fuel pump. 
and he was instructed to detach with his wingman and remain over the task force. And I proceeded with my wingman uh, instructed to intercept. There were seven contrails, and as they came over us, I could see that they were MiG-15s. I didn't know what country, I assumed probably Russia because we weren't very far from their, their territory. But as assigned, I uh, pursued them climbing in their direction. As they turned, they headed back, and in my assumption, I thought they were going home. But when I got to 26,000 feet, they split into a group of four airplanes going to the right and three to the left and descending. And when they dropped below the contrail level, I couldn't see them anymore and uh, reported that to Combat Information Center on the Oriskany. And they had also lost contact with them as being a smaller target. Their radar no longer picked them up. So we didn't know where they were or what they were doing, so I was instructed to re turn around and come back and establish a barricade at 26,000 feet uh, between the last contact of the MiGs and the task force. Well, it was while in that turn, the four that turned off to the right came in and met me from a 10 o'clock position relative to the clock in my, where I was flying, and they were all shooting. So I didn't pick them up until they were thought they were in range, and I turned hard into them, and as they passed by, uh, I was within range and uh, tracking their number four airplane, the one that was closest to me and the farthest behind the lead, and fired a short burst, and uh, he dropped out of formation. I reported to the information center that uh, I had just, uh, thought I'd just hit one, and they said, do not engage. And I said, hey, we are engaged. They said, go get them. The three remaining pulled up hard and showed me how classy an airplane they were flying that could uh, really outmaneuver, high climb and zoom to about 2,000 feet above me. And they had split to where the guy who just lost his wingman was coming in and I was going to track him, but uh, he was in the sun and I kind of lost him and I saw the other two had already turned into me coming back. So I changed my aim point and was tracking the lead and he fired at me and uh, I thought he was a little out of range but he was coming in fast. So I fired and uh, I may have hit him because he turned away and uh, then his wingman came in and I changed my point of aim onto him and he was firing away and I was shooting at him at a rather long burst and then he quit but he continued flying toward me and flew directly underneath me and I would assume that he was probably hit, the pilot. Uh, and while this was happening, the other three came in from the other direction. So depending on what happened to these that I hit or didn't hit, uh, I may be up there with six 
my wingman wasn't with me anymore because when I hit the first guy and he dropped out, uh, my wingman trailed him, uh, tracked him on down to where thought he was going in the ocean. And I don't know what he did from that time on, but I didn't see him again. I was now mightily engaged. These guys were no longer formation. They were uh, singles operating as a single fighter trying to shoot me down. And uh, I wasn't trying to do anything fancy. I was countering their attacks. And then uh, as they pulled off, they would pull abruptly up so high uh, that I couldn't uh, track them anymore. They weren't a target. They were just getting positioned to come back in and let the next guy have his turn. Well, one time, a guy uh, failed to do that pull-up and he kind of slid in front of me. And while he was in close, I fired and hit him and uh, it was almost as though he stopped and his airplane pieces were coming off him and I had to turn abruptly to avoid running into him. Um, and beyond that, I'm doing the same thing. They're making their runs and I'm countering. And so this uh, lasted about a half hour. And you've been listening to Captain Royce Williams in his own words, which we love to do here on this show. And by the way, this is not a video game, and it's not a movie. This was Captain Royce Williams' real-life story, and he was in combat doing this thing, this hard thing. And by the way, to give you a context, this was the Korean War. 54,000 people, 54,000 of our fighters died in combat in the Korean War, 58,000 in the Vietnam War, World War I was 116,000, World War II, 405,000, and the most ghastly figure of them all, the American Civil War, 750,000 dead. When we come back, we're going to continue with the remarkable story of Captain Royce Williams, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and the story of Captain Royce Williams. Let's pick up where we last left off. So this uh, lasted about a half hour. And uh, toward the end of this thing, I was on the tail of one of them. And uh, he stopped maneuvering and, and was slowing down and, and losing altitude and I was out of ammunition. So I turned around and I saw a Meg was coming in on my tail and I turned real hard into him. And I would say it was a lucky shot, but uh, he hit me with a 37 millimeter right in the wing butt and exploded in the accessory section of the engine, destroying all of the hydraulics and a lot of the electrical and, 
uh, severed the cable to the rudder. The guy settled right in behind me at uh, perfect shooting range. But I had my elevator working and I would jam the stick forward and then I would pull it back and this would be pretty high G zooms and I, I was always at 100% power the whole fight. And so I had uh, pretty good control for this maneuver that uh, really saved my life. And I dove into the clouds and lost sight of him. And so I knew I was in bad shape and I thought about ejecting. But this is winter time and the ocean is extremely cold. And though I'm wearing an immersion suit, it probably would have extended my survival to maybe 20 minutes. And there was no time for me to um, be rescued. So that would have been it. My commanding officer uh, of the squadron had taken off and uh, with a, a Division Four airplanes to go up and relieve me. On takeoff, he saw me coming into the task force area under the clouds and being shot at by the destroyers. They didn't know who I was and they were at general quarters ready to fight and cleared to shoot if uh, they had an unidentified and they were concerned. So they shot and he uh, called off the dog saying he's friendly. I was uh, talking to a group of people in Pensacola, the first time I ever talked about this at all, many years later. And one of the gentlemen afterwards came back and said, I, I was one of the guys shooting at you. I was on a destroyer and he said, I'm sorry. I said, you didn't hit me. Don't worry. <laughs> I saved uh, the adrenaline for after my landing. And then I did get a flush of that uh, once I realized what I'd been through. The uh, plane captain who kind of owned that airplane got a grease pencil and went around and circled all the perforations and counted 263. So I did meet the captain and he congratulated me for whatever I did and said uh, he thought I had just earned a Navy Cross. I had a meeting with uh, the senior admiral in the Western Pacific who told me that uh, we were covered by the operation of a new capability called NSA and this being their first venture had a team on the Helena which was right off the coast of Vladivostok where the base was located that these bigs came from and their sensors told them that I got at least three and uh, I was told that uh, this is after we got into port uh, and Yokosuka and told to never tell anybody ever. And so I spent maybe 50 some years or something like that where I never told a soul. They told me there was a lot of surmising by other people and they were concerned about maybe World War III. Uh, something's going to get out of hand. I was told that because we had this new capability of NSA, we didn't want them to know about it. And if I 
were to come out with all this information that it would be more than I as a single fighter pilot in there would actually have gleaned by myself. At some point I received word that uh, the president-elect was uh, on his way out and had requested to meet with me. And so the president came over to me and then took me by the elbow uh, over to a big overstuffed leather chair, placed me in it with a little shove, sat on the arm, and uh, said, before we get down to business, we ought to have a drink, don't you think? Well, I concurred. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, we have bourbon and scotch and water and soda. What do you have? My son John's the bartender. Well, bourbon and water, please. He says, we have awfully good scotch. I said, well, sir, I prefer bourbon and water. Young man, we have awfully good scotch. I said, well, sir, I really bourbon and water. Lieutenant, we've got the world's finest scotch. <laughs> Mr. President, I drink bourbon and water. Oh, John, give him a bourbon and water. So he did, and then um, we chatted, and we didn't talk directly anything about the Russians. We talked about uh, his new position as president, and uh, that I, uh, indicated I was a career man, and uh, he said that will make me your boss and uh, will have a lot to do with the equipment you use. And so we sort of discussed fighting equipment and how much better the big happened to be uh, in performance and that sort of thing. Also accompanying him was everybody who was anybody in the command structure in the Korean War. So he'd ask me a question and uh, one of them I wanted to engage, so they would talk about it, and then he kind of looked at me, and then another general would come in and uh, say his piece, and then he's, and Lieutenant, what were you going to say? And the Secretary of Defense, and the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Omar Bradley. So I was proud of the company I was in. I. Uh, Got other awards and uh, other wars and other holes in my airplane, hit by a SAM missile. Uh, one day, barely just knocked off a chunk of my tail. But, uh, so life, life went on and I engaged fully. And uh, life's been good. And life indeed has been good. You've been listening to The Voice of Captain Royce Williams, the only American aviator to single-handedly shoot down four Soviet MiGs. And then, well, he had to keep it secret for just about mm, 50 years. And by the way, the first person Captain Williams shared his story with after it was declassified was his bride. And today, Williams' friends at his local American Legion Post 416 in Encinitas, California, are working very hard to get him the Medal of Honor. A special thanks, by the way, to our own Philip Graham for getting this story and for bringing it to you. With over 12,000 American Legion posts across this great country, be sure to stop by one in your neighborhood and thank a vet, or even better, join 
If you or your family members have been vets, you would be supporting all the great things the Legion does, and who knows, you may even get to meet a national hero like Captain Royce Williams. Celebrating Captain Williams, the American Legion, and all of our veterans for their service to this great country, this is Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love to hear your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. There's some of our very favorites. And now, a story from a listener named Mark Levy, who hears the show on the great KOA in Denver. And today, this father pays tribute to his son. My 35-year-old son is a quiet hero. As a teenager, he began to exhibit a variety of strange physical ailments. He got skinny and occasionally fell after losing his balance. He often felt exhausted and sometimes vomited. This went on for two or three years while he saw neurologists and other specialists until a simple overlooked blood test revealed Graves' disease which is an autoimmune disease that results in an overactive thyroid gland. After a few years of partially successful attempts to control the disease with drugs, he had his thyroid removed. After many years, his thyroid hormone levels, now mostly provided by an oral drug, stabilized. One of the symptoms of Graves' disease is anxiety and depression. One day, 19 years ago, before his thyroid levels were under control, I found a note he had written to no one explaining his unfathomable sadness and realized he was on the verge of suicide. I'd informed him a few weeks earlier that a friend of his at high school had killed herself, and I knew the idea of suicide spreads among teenagers like a virus. He spent a week in a pediatric psych ward at the hospital and began a regiment of antidepressants and therapy that helped pull him out of the darkness over a period of a couple of years. There was the day I sat with him in the hospital and explained to him how much pain his death would cause to so many people who loved him. It's hard to describe what it's like to have your son want to end his own life. I can tell you it's a whole lot better than having your son actually end his own life, but it takes a toll on the whole family. Of course, I'm so grateful that Eitan recovered. He went to Sarah Lawrence College because they focus on writing as a method of learning. He was a sort of normal kid there for a while, 
but he was always searching for ways to make his life meaningful after having considered ending his own life. Professor suggested he consider his own religious heritage, and Eitan took a trip to Israel and fell in love with the place. They had something he was looking for. Israelis live every day building their ancestral homeland and creating a unique country with a unique culture. For religious Israelis, they build this future while meeting religious obligations in the place their history and theology tells them it should be done. And they do it under constant threat of destruction from people who see the entire enterprise very differently. All of that created a tremendous pull on my boy with his renewed love of life, and he spent a year at Hebrew University and then became an Israeli citizen. Lots of religious American Jewish kids move to Israel for a while, but not so many stay. Moving to a new country is not so easy. The language and the culture is different and hard to master. Most of the American Jewish kids who go to Israel come from Orthodox homes and have a path to a yeshiva that fits them, or they go to an Israeli Defense Force unit for a crash course in Israeli culture and to defend the state. Eitan had neither a clear path to a yeshiva or to the army. He grew up in a home, mine, that only started observing the laws of the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat, years after he left for Israel. He did have some Jewish education, but not a clear path to a life in Israel. So he found his path and eventually attended Sulam Yaakov in Jerusalem, where he received ordination as an Orthodox rabbi. You might think that set his career path, but there are a lot of rabbis in Israel. It's not really a job for too many people. At the same time, he got his tour guide license, which requires two years of training in Israel. When he first got to Israel, he tried to enter the army, but his physical health made that not an option for him. He married a wonderful young woman, and he had three sons in quick succession. So you might think this would be the end of the happy story of a young man's transition to a new life in a new country. But apparently God decided nothing was to be easy for Eitan. Without dwelling too much on tales of woe, Eitan faced an ongoing set of difficult challenges over the last 10 years. His fluctuating thyroid hormone levels returned from the tiny bits of thyroid tissue left behind from his surgery, causing some of the old symptoms to return. The severe excess thyroid levels from his teenage years had caused damage to the tiny muscles in his eyes, and the effects of the damage got worse over time, resulting in an inability to read normal-sized print. So, in a world where work meant either staring at a computer all day, which Eitan cannot do, or doing significant physical work all day, which his health does not allow, Eitan found himself effectively unemployable, except for his ability to work in the highly competitive tour guide business and with a family of five to support. It gets worse. 
Aton also has daily chronic headaches and periodic debilitating migraines that last from days to weeks. Effective treatment for these problems has been slow to emerge and only partially effective. His oldest son was born with rare cataracts in both eyes, requiring multiple surgeries and special schools to manage. His second son has celiac, the stomach problem that makes eating gluten seriously damaging, and learning disabilities. And his wife has a genetic anemia that contributed to her being overwhelmed with three toddlers and requiring more hands-on care duties than would otherwise be necessary from a time. So here you have a young immigrant with multiple illnesses, a needy family, the need to support them financially and emotionally, and the only earning capacity is a tour guide limited by his special need to be close to home and in reach of his struggling family. His response has been to face each day with courage and faith in God, faith that these challenges are meant to test his inner strength. Aton has been a tower of strength and stability for his wife and children in the midst of his own pain. He has slowly improved his health with agonizing trips through the labyrinth of the Israeli health system that treats standard problems much better than mysterious autoimmune diseases and invisible headaches. He slowly built a tour guiding practice focusing on small groups that allow him to be away from home no more than a few nights at a time. He's created a set of technology tools including large print computer and phone screens and text to audio apps that allow him to function professionally in this high-tech world without being able to read normal sized print or even read large print without triggering more severe headaches. It's been painful to watch all of this as his father. Fathers want to be able to solve and fix problems faced by their children and it's painful to be unable to do much in the face of so many challenges. It's a universal issue to have to watch your children struggle and it's never easy. But Aton has also been an inspiration to me. When he's not flat in bed with a migraine, he's being a great husband and father, and he's running his growing business where his clients give glowing reviews for his kindness, warmth, and knowledge. He revels in being part of the rebuilding of Israel as the home of the Jewish people and making Israel the home for his sons. When there were times when he was in despair and angry at himself, I would remind him of how much he's accomplished with all his health challenges. I would tell him he moved to a new country and became a rabbi and found a way to earn a living despite terrible odds and got married and became a tremendous father and husband, all with debilitating pain that would have caused most men to quit. To me, he's just heroic. He's been shaped by many things, and I like to think the virtues of perseverance and self-reliance have merged with his personal faith to create a unique American-Israeli hero. What a remarkable story. And again, we thank Mark Levy, and he's a listener at KOA in Denver.
telling the story of his son, Aton, and he is a hero. And my goodness, it is true that we parents have to watch in the end our kids go through pain. And there's nothing we can do about it more often than not, except hopefully have trained them to be able to endure it, overcome it, and persevere. And the story of this young man's faith being the rock upon which he perseveres. Well, it's so many of the stories we tell here on this great show. Mark Levy's story, his son Anton's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, and some of our very best stories have been from our listener contributors. Send your stories, your suggestions to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next story, well, it's a whopper, and it's a heck of a business story, a heck of a story about history as well and it's brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College over the next hour you're going to hear the story of a man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world Henry Ford did not invent the automobile he didn't even invent the assembly line but more than any other single individual he was responsible for transforming the automobile from an invention of unknown utility and expensive curiosity into an innovation that profoundly shaped the 20th century and continues to affect our lives today. You all know his name. You're about to know his story. Here's Greg Hengler. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Here's historians David Kennedy, Nancy Cohen, and Douglas Brinkley. Well, Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride last Sunday. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. But less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best 
for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on Earth. Transformed by a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car, one specifically built for popular use. It weighs a thousand pounds, has a four-cylinder engine, and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $825, compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable to the common man. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. In the guise of protecting the public from unreliable upstarts, 11 car manufacturers form Alum in 1903. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future auto industry. These social planners are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly who partner with the government, all in the name of doing what is best for us. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. Here's historian H.W. Brands. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian so that it was within the reach of ordinary people. Ford spends years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America but he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Here's Henry Ford biographer, Stephen Watts. Alum was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Alum board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he's broke and appears to be all washed up. Ford needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Henry Ford's story, and it's true, he changed how we all lived, and we are indeed living in Henry Ford's world right now. And it's remarkable to note 
that up until Ford was doing what he was doing and thinking like he was thinking, people who owned cars didn't drive them. So clearly it was for the rich who had butlers, help, valets, whatever. And what Ford was trying to do was to, well, bring it to the ordinary person by bringing the price down and also by letting that person, well, drive the cars themselves. And all of our history pieces are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And that's everything from our This Day in Histories to a story like Henry Ford's, which, my goodness, you don't have to peg it to a date to want to hear more. When we return, we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And we return to our American stories and the life of Henry Ford. And when we last left off, Ford faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles in his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What happened next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S., Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. His childhood is spent on a farm among prairies, deep blue lakes, and tall green trees. Horses and horse-drawn carriages are the main form of transportation, and hard work is the only way to get things done. Henry's parents expect all their six children to work alongside them on the land. But Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry's father once said, he's not much of a farmer, he's a tinkerer. Here's automotive historian Robert Casey. Henry Ford was a natural born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his 13th birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, when his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry or he would take them apart to see their inner workings. In 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. His beloved mother, Mary, dies during childbirth, along with the newborn baby. But that very month, young Henry sees something that will change his life forever. While traveling down the road with his father in their horse-drawn wagon, Henry gets his first close-up view of a billowing steam-powered road roller, also known as as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry scrambles off the wagon and chases down the owner of this machine. Here's that moment portrayed in the 1987 film Ford, The Man and the Machine. Paul, what's that? Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. It's that engine making the wagon go. Listen here, 
For Henry Ford, this encounter was his road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the industrial revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from the outside world. Formal education didn't much interest Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. And like his future friend Thomas Edison and countless other youngsters across the nation, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit to become a machine shop apprentice. It is here where he will reinvent himself. In 1885, while attending a dance, Henry Ford meets Clara Bryant. Henry impresses Clara with a watch he made. She likes that he is a serious person and willing to work hard. Then, on a spring day in 1888, wearing a wedding dress that she's made herself, Clara marries Henry Ford. Ford nicknames his wife the Believer because she never doubts his skill as an inventor. He says, It was a very great thing to have my wife even more confident than I was. Then, on a spring day, almost 10 years later, in 1888, wearing a wedding dress she made for herself, Clara Jane Bryant, who grew up on a nearby farm, marries Henry Ford. Three years later, Henry Ford takes a job at the Edison Illuminating Company, working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. It's here where Henry Ford and the owner of the company, the man who invents the light bulb, Thomas Edison become good friends. During his free time, with his canny source of rugged engineering, Ford will stay in his dimly lit shed behind the house long into the night and often through the morning, secretly tinkering with machinery and doing experiments on his gasoline-powered engine. His curious neighbors ask his wife what he's doing all night long. Her response is simple. Henry is making something... Maybe someday I'll tell you about it. As the years pass, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Here's technology historian John Staudenmeyer. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm... Getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, German engineers Nicholas Otto and Eugene Langen have already invented the internal combustion engine that runs on gasoline. In 1886, their countrymen Gottlieb Daimler and Carl Benz are crossing European roads in their first automobile. But Ford is undisturbed by all this. He wants to build an automobile that is superior to all of theirs. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that has been taking shape in his mind. Here's Ford biographer Robert Lacey. 
Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, he got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. And right in the middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, whose, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. He connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhausted smoke. Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. Ford knows that he cannot be free to succeed as long as Alum clouds the destiny as marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Here again is Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. Ford is determined to get around Allen's stranglehold on the auto industry, but he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Allen, he's going to need to make a name for himself. Ford writes, the public thinks nothing of a car unless it makes speed, unless it beats other racing cars. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. And talk about audacity, and what a story, folks. A childhood on the farm, all he saw was horses and horse-drawn carriages, works with his hands, he's a tinkerer, totally self-taught, and right around the same time that he loses his mom, well, he also gets his first look at that old steamroller, and, well, that was his road to Damascus. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how Henry Ford, well, how he changed the world, challenged the monopoly power of a group that was essentially trying to block competition and protect their own way of doing business under the pretext of a patent that even Henry Ford thought was just absurd. How to keep a patent on something as broad as an automobile. By the way, there have been stories right up to the present day of the abuse of patents. And we've covered a few of them here. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Ford. Again, quit school after the fifth grade. And my goodness, working for Thomas Edison at the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. More on the life of Henry Ford when we continue here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we return to the story of Henry Ford and all of our history stories, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, themselves a product of the great state of Michigan. And when we last left off, Henry Ford had embarked in a challenge against the most famous 
and the most world-renowned race car driver. And he was also in an ongoing battle with the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, known as Alum. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Alum. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. Here again is Stephen Watts. It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford legs behind Winton, struggling to control his car on the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat and smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. William Murphy, his key financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company named after the founder of Fort Detroit, the French explorer Antoine de Cadillac. Ford leaves with his name, $900, and a dream. Henry Ford raises $28,000, or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company and before long, he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits, by increasing the price tag of his automobile. Here again is Ford biographer Robert Lacey. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks. It should be able to drive across a plowed field. A farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. It's a blatant attempt to police him out of the business. But Ford's dream to make the car a necessity rather than a luxury will not be crushed. Here's Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might. And those with the best tricksters win. Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So, as his lawsuit winds its way through the court, he openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. Henry Ford believes there's a better way to conduct business in America, and he's determined to make it a reality. 
Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. He also cuts hours from 10 per day to 8. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better, he's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, his are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line, and it completely changes manufacturing forever. Here again is historian H.W. Brands. Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight hour workday, five days a week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in America. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Ford's battle against Alum in the state lasted from 1903 until 1911. At some point early in the fight, Ford could have negotiated a peace treaty with Alum, but that would have violated his principles. Ford was once asked, what's your greatest ambition? To be free, a free man, he shot back. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as the alum patent clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford's destiny is made a reality, and the car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. But in crucial ways, unlike Rockefeller or Carnegie, he wasn't trying to gain a monopoly. He was trying to bring a product to the people. The American population ate this up and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K is too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, has an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford keeps at it and hits the jackpot with the Model T. Here again is John Stoudemire. I think it was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential, and you think you got it, and then you get it. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. The Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good, 
and is as good as it looks. Mr. The response is immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. And what a story, and my goodness, some breaking points, some turning points in his life. Winning that race, and of course starting the company that had one, well, failed launch. And Mark Cuban, well, he put it right. Those big guys at Allen were trying to take advantage of this little guy and using law, patent law, and every other legal trick. And luckily for Ford, after an eight-year struggle in the courts, the courts, well... They let Ford be a free man, and he was free to compete. And this ushered in the Model T and modern transportation as we know it and the automobile. When we come back, this remarkable life story, Henry Ford's story, continues here on Our American Story. at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And my goodness, storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks, about an American icon. So much of this I didn't know myself. And all of our history pieces are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And that's everything from our This Day in Histories to a story like Henry Ford's, which, my goodness, you don't have to peg it to a date to want to hear more. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here's historians Greg Grandin and Hacia Diner. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you wanted and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car and you have access now to towns, to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They are also remarkably durable. Here's historian Douglas Brinkley. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles. And when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just genieing out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it's black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. Unlike other cars at the time, 
every Model T produced on the line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc., so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day roll out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916, and as productivity goes up, the price goes down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. are Model Ts. And by 1927, Ford has rolled 15 million through his assembly lines. All the success didn't concern Ford much. Workers report seeing him take a crumpled up piece of paper out of his pocket, only to discover that it is a check for $68,000. Henry stuffed it in there and then forgot all about it. To Ford, making money didn't make a person successful. As he later wrote, to do for the world more than the world does for you, that is success. One small yet very significant and relatively unknown success for Ford was his popularization of an incendiary little brick that helps fire up our grills. One of the primary raw materials Ford used to build his Model T's was wood. So, he sent a friend to look for forest land to purchase in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. To find out how using wood to build Model T's led to a building block of the backyard barbecue, let's hear from Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation of the Henry Ford. Ford was building Model T's by the hundreds of thousands every year, and he was starting to think about vertical integration, not just owning the factories that built the cars, but all of the raw materials that went into them. Looking for forest land up there, he hired a fellow by the name of Edward Kingsford. He was a Ford dealer, he had some experience with real estate, and not incidentally, he was married to Henry Ford's first cousin. So he goes around and finds over 300,000 acres that Henry Ford purchases, and then Ford builds a sawmill right there on the site to build the bodies and then send them down to the plant in Dearborn. Henry Ford's lumber mill was producing hundreds of thousands of board feet of lumber each day, so there was a lot of wood waste coming out of that. And Ford thought, rather than throw away all this waste, what if we could turn it into a commercial product? And that's where the charcoal briquette idea came from. It's been said that Ford had some outside help in developing the exact chemistry behind his charcoal briquettes and the makeup of the plant. In fact, it's been said that Thomas Edison assisted to some extent in that. And whether it's true or not, it is for sure that Edison came up and visited Ford's Upper Peninsula land holdings in 1923. As long as Henry was alive and Ford Motor Company was producing it, it was sold under the Ford brand name, just like the cars. After Henry Ford dies in 1947, the company slowly begins to move away from this vertical integration idea. They sell off their businesses in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, including the charcoal business, which then another company buys, and they rename the product Kingsford, after the town where Ford had founded up there, which was named for Edward Kingsford. By 1963, barbecues like cars were icons of American leisure. As an article in Reader's Digest observed, cooking with charcoal is now as deeply ingrained in American life as the long weekend in the servantless kitchen. At the end of 1927, Ford introduces the newly improved Model A. This new design is revolutionary. It's a 65 mile per hour beauty it incorporates things like headlights, a windshield, and even a turnkey ignition. He also introduces a new way of buying a car, financing, a method that is still the most common way of buying a car to this very day. 
Cutting prices enable Ford to achieve what are his two aims in life. To bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Here's business historian Murray Klein. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, the way we do things, and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national, and in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returns home from vacation. On his second day back, heavy rain causes the Rouge River to overflow, knocking out power to the Fairlane power plant and to Henry Ford's estate. That evening, Henry and his wife turn in early, power still out in their room lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night is out, Henry Ford, the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, lays his head on his wife's shoulder and leaves the world just as he came into it 84 years earlier, by candlelight. In Detroit, Motorists are asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body is being lowered into the ground. At the second, when the automobiles come to a stop, Detroit returns to the way Henry Ford had found it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work, as always, by Greg Hengler, and thanks to all who contributed to this piece, all the historians, the Ford Museum, and what a life story, folks. And it doesn't get more quintessentially American than Henry Ford's story. Starts out at the family farm, not really interested in school, starts to tinker, challenges the world's greatest auto racer to a race, and he's never raced a car before, and he wins. Starts a company, it gets stolen from him, he starts it again, And he challenges a cartel and wins in court. And by the way, he does some remarkable things as a businessman. He raises wages, he cuts hours, and he brings down the cost of a car and creates a car that everyone in America can use, taking it from the purview of the rich to the ordinary and the day-to-day and giving people tremendous freedom 
to roam, to visit, to travel, and to live as they please. And by the way, on a secondary note, it's well chronicled that Ford had some anti-Semitic problems and problems with anti-Semitism, as did much of America. But in the end, Ford's great work on perfecting production and the means of production helped power the arsenal of democracy, which allowed America to defeat the Nazi war machine. Henry Ford's story, a terrific Michigan story, a great American story, here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Network.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.